welcome to our studies in the book of Daniel called Unsealing Daniel's Mysteries. This is the second in our series. You'll recall last week we introduced the book of Daniel. Daniel is the only book in the Bible that Jesus specifically told us to study. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoever is in the holy place, let him read and understand. Jesus made that comment in context with his great sermon on the last days of verse history in Matthew 24, where he talks about there'll be wars and rumors of wars, there'll be false Christs and false prophets, famines and earthquakes, pestilence, rise of crime and violence, gospel going to the end of the world. So Jesus encourages us to study the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel was written for a specific time in earth's history. Daniel 12 verse 4 tells us the, the angel tells Daniel, shut up, seal the book, even to the time of the end. And verse 9 of Daniel 12, go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed and shut up till the end of the days. The last verse of the book of Daniel says that um, Daniel would stand in his lot at the end of the days. So the spe specific purpose of the book of Daniel is to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. Now you remember that Daniel's name is unique. If you see a name in the Bible, that the last two letters are E-L, that asks God. So the name Daniel means God is my judge. God is my vindicator. God is the one who'll set all things right. So in this great controversy between good and evil, in this cosmic conflict between Christ and Satan, God is the one who'll set all things right. Last week, we found that Daniel was taken captive when he was about 17 years old, brought from the simplicity and godliness of his Judean home to the lavishness and the immorality and the arrogance and rebellion of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, 605 BC, attacks Jerusalem takes young people captive. They were intelligent, good-looking, handsome, muscular, brilliant, and Nebuchadnezzar's intent is to educate them for three years in the University of Babylon and then bring them back to Jerusalem, to Israel, to be his puppet rulers. We found that Daniel, chapter 1, verse 8, purposes in his heart to serve God. And as the result of that... Uh, Daniel, faithful to God, receives the blessings of God. Faithfulness to God brings God's blessings. So he receives the blessings of God. Daniel and his friends are found 10 times better than the astrologer, than all of the wise men in the realm of Babylon. Daniel went through the three-year educational period in the University of Babylon, remained faithful to God, and chapter two ends with this magnificent text, chapter one rather, ends with this magnificent text, verse 21, Daniel continues to the first year of King Cyrus. Nations rise and fall, but Daniel continues. Kings come on their throne, but Daniel continues. He goes from one empire to the next as we are faithful to God, making a commitment to Christ for these last days. We will go from the kingdoms of this earth we could call them the Babylon of this earth with its sex-centered, thrill-jaded, morally twisted, ethically compromised society. 
to the land of glory, caught up in the sky to meet Jesus forever. Daniel is divided into two parts. The first six chapters deal with stories. They deal with integrity and honesty and purposing in the heart to serve God in prayer and faith and character development. The last six chapters predominantly deal with prophecy. Now, there's a little interlude in there in Daniel chapter 2, which blends prophecy and character. We look at that today, Daniel chapter 2, and if you have your Bible, I invite you to take it. This is an amazing chapter. I've studied Daniel chapter 2 for over 50 years. And every time I open the Bible, every time I study the book of Daniel, I find new insights. And so whether you are new in studying prophecy or whether you have studied it for many years, I pray today that God will give us new insight as we study. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you with all of our hearts for the word of God. We thank you for the prophecies of the Bible. We thank you that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord and that he has promised to reveal the future to prepare us for the events that will burst upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. So open our hearts today and prepare us as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Daniel 2, verse 1. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. Now just a, a short explanation. It says the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. If Daniel was captured three years before and Nebuchadnezzar was the king, why say second year? Because they have what they call the regal or the reign year that's not counted. So the regal year is the first year, not counted. Then they start with what we would call the second year and they count the set first year as second and then on to third. So Daniel was in captivity three years, but technically from the Babylonian standpoint, Nebuchadnezzar this was his second year. So his spirit is troubled. His sleep leaves him. He goes to sleep, verse 2. Then the king gave command to all call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to tell the king the dreams. So they came before the king. So the king went to sleep and he had a dream. Have you ever gone to sleep at night and you've had a dream and you wake up in the morning and can't remember it? I mean, maybe you were eating too much pizza just before you went to bed. I don't know. Probably not. I hope not. Uh, but, you know, the king wasn't eating something. This was a God-given dream. A lot of our dreams have little or no significance at all, but this dream has great significance. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He woke up in the morning, couldn't remember his dream. And sometimes that happens to us. We remember it. We have a dream, but can't remember it. So he calls in. Who does he call in? The magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. So who are these? The magicians were those that would, for example, take the liver of a calf, cut it in half, look at the lining of that liver of the calf, and try to predict the future. They would take a drop of oil, a, and a drop of water, drop it on oil, look at the patterns, and try to tell the future. Who are the astrologers? Now, not astronomers, but astrologers. Who are these astrologers? They would look at the stars and they would have Leo and, and, uh, and the various uh, star signs in astrology, you know. And uh, as they looked up, they would try to tell the future by looking at these different star signs. You know, there are about 3,000 astrology columns in newspapers across America, and many people guide their lives by them today. But the magicians and the astrologers let Nebuchadnezzar down, and they will certainly let people down today. The sorcerers, who are the sorcerers? 
they are those who try to communicate with the dead. They are spiritualists, wizards, Chaldeans. Chaldeans, none name for Babylonian educators. They were the educated elite. So the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans are called in. They can't tell the king's dream. Now, what does the Bible say about these folk, these kind of people? Uh, we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 18 because we learn a vital lesson about it today. Are there those today that are dominated by the psychic phenomena? There are. Are some of the best-selling movies having to do with wizards and hobbits? And uh, have you ever heard of the Harry Potter books? All about wizards, you know. And you look at what's taking place in our world today. This interest in the supernatural, this interest in spiritualism, this interest in magi magicians and psychics, the renewed interest in astrology. What does that tell you? It tells you that human beings have a longing, a longing to know about their own lives, a longing to know about the future, a longing to tap into the supernatural. What does God's word say? Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. When you come into the land, this is Israel, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found anyone among you makes his son or daughter pass with the fire. Who's that? That's one of the magicians or practices witchcraft or a soothsayer or one that interprets omens. That's like an astrologer or a sorcerer or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For these things are an abomination to the Lord. They are false sources of wisdom. Isaiah, looking there at the 47th chapter, the 13th verse. Isaiah 47, verse 13. These are false sources of, of knowledge, false, false sources of wisdom. It says, you are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. This is Isaiah 47, verse 13. Hope you have your Bibles. Hope you have a little notebook. You're copying down the text. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you. For these things that shall come upon you, behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by nor a fire to sit by. So when we look to magic, sorcery, wizards, astrology, when we're fascinated by that, we prepare, if we are, we prepare for deception. And just before Christ comes, the devil will manifest himself through false Christ, false prophets, that'll deceive, if possible, the very elect. So the idea of Daniel chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar calls in the astrologers, the soothsayers, when he calls in the stargazers, calls in the magicians, <coughs> when he calls these in and they fail, it is God's way of telling us clearly not to look to those sources. So they come in and the king says to them, I've had a dream. My spirit is anxious to know the dream. He's worried. He's troubled. He's tense. He knows the dream has real significance. 
They say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give the interpretation. <laughs> the king's too smart for that. In other words, you tell me anything you've dreamed, and I can tell you the interpretation. May not be right, probably isn't right. You see, if a person has a dream and tells it to these psychics, they can make up any interpretation, and you have no way of knowing that it's right initially. And the king was too smart for that. He said, look, if you can't tell me what happened in my bedroom last evening, you can't tell me what's going to happen tomorrow. Either you tell me or your life will be on the line. Either you tell me or you will face the death penalty. The Chaldeans, verse 10, answered. And this answer is right. There, verse 10, Daniel 2. There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, Chaldean. Verse 11, it's a difficult thing that the king requires, and there's no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Nobody can tell the future, they say, except the gods or except God. They're so right. Throughout scripture, God exalts himself above all false gods. He exalts himself above all the idols by his ability to tell the future. Prophecy is one indication that God is supreme. He speaks about that in Isaiah 46. So if you have your Bible, let's go over to Isaiah 46. God speaks about this in Isaiah chapter 46. And we're going to look there at verse 8 and 9. Remember this, Isaiah 46, verse 8 and 9. Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other like me. I am God and there's none like me. Why is there nobody like him? What distinguishes him from the other gods? Here's one thing. De verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So one of the things that, di that distinguishes God from all false gods is that he can declare from ancient times things that are not yet done. You remember what it says in Amos 3, verse 7? Amos 3, verse 7. Surely, what's that word surely mean? Certainly, definitely, the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. The Lord will do nothing, but he reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. So one of God's hallmarks of his omniscience is prophecy, because the omniscient God foretells the future based on the divine knowledge that he has of the future. So these magicians, these astrologers, in one sense, had at least one thing right, and that is that nobody can tell the future except the gods that are um, not with men, except the God that's not with men. They didn't understand that there, were, there was only one true God but they recognized that there needed to be something beyond human to tell the future. When they say that to the king, 
the king is angry. He's really mad. And Nebuchadnezzar actually begins to kill them. Do some die? Sure. Look at verse 13. So the decree went forth, and they, that is the king's armies, began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him. So Daniel is facing a death decree. Daniel is facing the greatest crisis that he's ever faced. He's one of the wise men of Babylon. He is approached by the military of Babylon, Ariok, the captain of the king's guard, and he too is going to be killed. Not that he's an astronomer or magician, but he's one of the Chaldeans, one of the educated elite. He's gone through the school of Babylon. And here's the interesting thing about this. Every single one of us, if we live to the coming of Jesus, according to Revelation 13, there'll be a time that no man can buy or sell. There'll be a time that um, a death decree hangs over our heads. Revelation 13 says that uh, they will attempt to destroy us or kill us. The beast power will unite with the state powers. There'll be a union of political and religious powers at a time that the world is falling apart. And the idea will be if we all would only get together in unity in a common day of rest and worship. But yet there are these people who are standing out, they're different, and we've got to get rid of them. So Daniel faced this. Now the issues, of course, in Daniel 2 were different than Revelation 13. We'll see in Daniel 3, the issues will be very, very similar. But here is the point. Daniel faced a death decree. How did he deal with it? He said to the king, give us a little time. Give us time. And he went back to Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But you know what? I used actually the names that are used in Daniel 3 for the three Hebrew worthies, but this is very interesting. When Nebuchadnezzar talks about them, he talks about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but Daniel never uses their Babylonian names. He uses always the names their Israeli mothers gave them. And so it says in Daniel 2, verse 17, Daniel went to the house and made his decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Hananiah, what does that mean? The Lord's gracious to me. Now, Nebuchadnezzar changed his name because he wanted to change his identity. But Daniel wouldn't use the, the, the Babylonian name, Hananiah, the Lord's gracious to me. Mishael, one who's godlike, one who's a friend of God. Azariah, the Lord is my helper. If they ever needed help, they needed it then. And so they begin to pray. And in verse 19, the Bible says, The secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel prays. He seeks that there is no human solution to the problem. He earnestly appeals to God. And I love what it says. Daniel gets the answer, and Daniel begins to praise God. He says, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. So here are two qualities of God, wisdom and might. Wisdom is the ability to know what we ought to do. Might is the strength to do it. Do you need wisdom? Are you facing some crisis in your life tonight? A crisis in your health, a crisis on your job, a crisis in your family. Wisdom is God's. He said, if any man lacks wisdom, James 1 verse 5, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally. God wants to give you wisdom. Open your heart to him. Spend time with him, seeking him. 
get to know him and might are his. If you just know what to do, but you don't have the strength to do it, you lose your ability. You lose your power. Uh, you don't have any ability to carry out what God said. Wisdom and strength are his. Open your heart for the strength of God, for the power of God to come into your life. Daniel then praises God because he says he changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise. So what's this dream going to be about? God raising up and God taking down kings. It's going to be about the rise and fall of empires. It's going to be about the destiny of the world. It's going to take us from Nebuchadnezzar's day to the last days of verse history. Verse 22, he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in darkness and light dwells with him. God can look into the future that seems so dark to so many, but light will pierce that future because God is the author of the future and wisdom and might are his. So Daniel goes to the king and he says, King, God has revealed to me this dream. He says in verse 28, there is a God in heaven. Let's pick up verse 27 because it's so powerful. And verse 28, Daniel answered in the presence of the king, the secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. So in other words, all these psychics, all these wizards, all these brilliant men, they fail. But God knows the future. Verse 28, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets He's made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were those. So he says there is a God in heaven. Not there might be a God in heaven. Not perhaps there's a God in heaven. Not I think it's highly likely there's a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven. Don't you like that certainty? There is a God in heaven. What does he do? There is a God in heaven. He reveals secrets. And he makes known to King Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. He makes known what shall be in the latter days. So this dream starts in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. It takes us down the stream of time to our time. And we can see that prophecy was fulfilled in the past and it will be filled, fulfilled in the present. So Daniel begins to talk about the dream. Verse 31. And I can imagine King Nebuchadnezzar just leaning forward in his chair. King Nebuchadnezzar, his heart's beating faster. Beads of sweat stand out on his forehead. He, he senses that, there, that Daniel has been given by God, the God of heaven, the answer to the perplexing question of what did he dream and what does it mean? So Daniel says, verse 31, you, O king, were watching and behold a great image. This great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you. Its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which shrunk the image on its feet of iron and clay and broken into pieces. Then the iron, clay and bronze and silver and gold were crushed together, became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, the wind carried them away, so no trace was found for them. The stone that struck the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. So Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, you saw an image, a great image. 
The image had a head of gold. That's it, Daniel. That's exactly what I saw. Breast and arms of silver. You got it, Daniel. Thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. And then you saw a rock cut out without human hands that smote the image, crushed it to pieces. The wind blew it away, all the pieces. And the rock became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Now, if you were Nebuchadnezzar, sitting on the end of your seat, and Daniel told you that dream, and you remembered it exactly in every detail like he told it, what would your next question be? What would your next question be? Daniel, what does it mean? Daniel, just what does it mean? How do we know what prophecy means? Is prophecy all guesswork? I have every one of you write a little name, write something on a piece of paper. Or maybe I have all you email. This is what I think it means. No. The God of heaven who gives prophecy reveals clearly what that prophecy means. We're going to go to the Bible and let the Bible explain itself. This is an amazing prophecy. History has been following this like a blueprint. And as you and I look right now at the war and conflict in different places in the world, including conflict in Ukraine, Russia and Ukraine, conflict in the Middle East, you will be surprised to see that this prophecy speaks to our day. And the interesting thing about it is it takes us down through the stream of time and every sequence of the prophecy, every nation mentioned in the prophecy, this prophecy has been fulfilled for over 2,500 years. And if it's been fulfilled over 2,500 years, don't you think it'd be fulfilled today? Exactly, like the Bible says? Sure. So let's look at it. Head of gold. What's the mean, the head of gold? Here, Daniel begins to explain it. Daniel 2.36. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Who's the we? God and Daniel. You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. So God allowed the wicked king Nebuchadnezzar to sit on his throne to accomplish certain divine purposes. Wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he's given them into your hand. So Babylon was the dominant world ruling power, 605 BC to 539 BC. You are this head of gold. You are this head of gold. Is there any question who represented the head of gold? Not at all. It was Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Babylon. You know, gold was a fitting symbol of Babylon because Belmarduk, the chief god of Babylon, was a golden god who sat in a, on a golden throne beside a golden altar by a golden table and uh, in a golden dome temple. So Babylon lavishly used gold, tons of gold, in fact, in that temple. Babylon was a mighty power. Its walls were some 100 feet high. It was larger than Rome or Athens at the time. Babylon had a 20-year food supply within the city, historians tell us, so they could stand any siege. The river Euphrates ran through the city of Babylon, giving it a constant water supply. 
you would think that Babylon would rule forever. In fact, in a clay tablet discovered by the archaeologists, Nebuchadnezzar, that Nebuchadnezzar wrote, he wrote these words, O Babylon, the delight of mine eyes, the excellency of the kingdoms, may it last forever. Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see next week, particularly in chapter three, wanted the whole image to be of gold. He wanted his nation to rule forever and ever and ever. You know, there is was a way the archaeologists have uncovered it. Robert Coldaway uh, excavated Babylon uh, in the uh, 19th century. And uh, this archaeologist, he uncovered the, 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 the brick way into Babylon. It's called the procession way that would go in through the Ishtar Gate. And you know what he found? Every brick had Nebuchadnezzar's name stamped on it. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with ego, filled with pride, wanted his empire to last forever. But notice what it says. But after you shall arise another kingdom. No, can't be. Can't be with Nebuchadnezzar. Thing. Can't be. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and a fourth kingdom shall be as strong as I am. What, what kingdom ever could have the possibility of defeating Babylon? Babylon route 605 to 539. Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian, attacked Babylon. Do you know that 150 years before his birth, Cyrus was named by God? Look, Isaiah chapter 44, in the exact way that he would attack was named Isaiah chapter 44. And we're going to look here. Verse 27, verse 28, chapter 45, verse 1. And who says to the deep, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers. Who says to Cy of Cyrus, he's my shepherd. So God's speaking to Cyrus. Cyrus not born yet. This is the days of Isaiah, written some 680 years plus before Christ. And Medo-Persia attacks 539 BC. And uh, so it's about 150 years. And uh, he names Cyrus, he's my shepherd. He should perform all my pleasure. For saying to Jerusalem, you'll be built to the temple. Your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus would be one of those who passed the decree to allow Israel to go back to rebuild Jerusalem because you remember Israel was in captivity to Babylon. Naming Cyrus 150 years before he's born, this, this is amazing. Verse chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, Cyrus will be his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him, to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so the gates will not be shut. What is that talking about? Well, the Medo-Persians surround Babylon. The Babylonians know they're coming, but they're not worried about it because they've got constant water supply, constant food supply. River Euphrates runs through Babylon. One of Cyrus's royal horses dies in the river. He gets so mad, Euphrates, up to upstream, outside the walls. He gets an idea. I know what I'll do. He diverts the river Euphrates that his men dig irrigation channels and they divert it. The water level below the gates falls. It dries up. Remember it said in the press, you dry up. Nebuchadnezzar takes his armies, marches them under the outer gates, but there was a protection because inside the city, when the river flowed through it, you still had the walls on the inner gates. But remember what Isaiah 44 said, the gates would not be shut. There was a drunken feast in 539 BC with Belshazzar. 
And that's when God wrote on the wall, many, many tekel yufarsin. Your kingdom is weighed in the balances and found wanting. It's given to the Medes and the Persians. The gates weren't shut. This prophecy, 150 years before, speaks of Daniel, spoken, interpreted by Daniel, given to Nebuchadnezzar, reveals the history of these nations. Babylon rose and fell. Medo-Persia rose and fell. You know, there's some evidence that Daniel came to Cyrus and told him about this prophecy, that he was named 150 years in advance. There's some Jewish traditions that may indicate that. We can't be sure, of course. But, and that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he was named. He told Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, rather Cyrus. He told Cyrus that he was named, told Cyrus that he uh, would attack the city and overcome Babylon. Man, I wonder if that actually happened. And it well might have. I would have expected it to happen. I would have loved to sat there as Daniel gave a Bible study to the King Cyrus and explained to him his name. So Medo-Persia rules from 539 to 331. But the Bible says that after you, a third kingdom of bronze, what kingdom overthrew Babylon? Medo-Persia. What kingdom overthrew Medo-Persia? Greece. And it's interesting. Alexander the Great, 32 years old, conquers the world. 33 years old, he uh, has extending his kingdom. And he goes down and he, he's overthrown Medo-Persia now. And Artaxerxes, he goes down into the ruins of Babylon. He has 10,000 men and he tries to rebuild Babylon. But the Bible predicted Babylon would never be rebuilt. He evidently contracts malaria, Alexander does, and he's drinking, weak bodies in a weakened condition, and he dies, and Babylon is never rebuilt, exactly like prophecy predicted. But I'd like you to think of these two men, both dying at 33. Alexander, at 33, laments because there are no more worlds to conquer. He dies wealthy with the kingdoms of this world in his hand, but he dies with no hope of the future. But there's another man, not arrogant, not humble, or rather not arrogant, but very humble. There's another man. He dies, and the Bible says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no wind to lay his head. This, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. There's another man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he dies not in fame. He dies not with wealth in his hand. He dies on a cross of Calvary with nails through his hands, not a scepter, with a crown of thorns, not a, crown, a diadem of glory. He dies not with thousands of soldiers around him, but he dies for the sins of humanity. He dies saying, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. The plan of salvation has been consummated. He dies assuring eternal life for you, eternal life for me. Alexander dies with the things of this world in his grasp. Jesus dies with the things of eternity in his grasp. Now, it's interesting. The Bible predicted in Daniel chapter 8 that Greece would follow 
Medo-Persia. And actually, the Bible names Greece. You'll find it in Daniel chapter 8. And it talks about uh, another imagery, a ram and a he-goat. And it says, uh, Daniel 8, verse 8, the male goat grew great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. And in the place of it, a notable horn came up. And so you have this, uh, this uh, male goat, the notable horn comes up. Who's that? Verse 21 of Daniel 8, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn between his eyes, first king. Who's the first king? Alexander the Great. Verse 22, Daniel 8, and for the broken horn, four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of it, and uh, but not with his power. So here, Daniel names Greece. And when does he do that? Daniel names Greece. The Greeks didn't rule for till 331 AD. Daniel's writing this back a couple hundred years in advance. It's amazing. And Daniel names Greece when it's just a city-states at that time that are weak. He names it. You can see it here in your Bible. And then Daniel says there'd be one prominent horn. Who is that? Alexander. Then he would die quickly. And what would happen? Four horns would come up. Who are those? Cassandra, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, Seleucus, four generals. They divided up his empire. I mean, prophecy is just amazing. After Greece, we go back to Daniel chapter 2. There'd be Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. History is following prophecy like a blueprint. And it says in Daniel, second chapter, it says, in the fourth kingdom, verse 40, Daniel 2, verse 40, you following? You got it? And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things. And the iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all others. Where you saw feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be mixed in it, just as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay. We're going to go there. Fourth kingdom. What nation overthrew Greece? You know, the Roman Empire. And so Rome grows legs of iron. It expands its kingdom. The Roman Empire goes from England, what we now would know as England, that area, Anglo-Saxon area, later when the Anglo-Saxons overthrow it. But it goes from that territory all across what we would call modern Europe. It goes over through what we would now today call Turkey and Jordan. It goes down through some of the Middle East, goes down, of course, through Israel, and goes down to Northern Africa, goes through Egypt. All of that was part of this marvelous Roman empire. The Bible says that Rome would fall. You know, it was the Roman empire that existed in the days of Jesus. Jesus was tried by a Roman ruler. Jesus was crucified by Roman soldiers. Roman soldiers guarded his tomb. Roman soldiers put a seal on that tomb. Fell over like dead men when Christ rose from the dead. Uh, all through the early Roman world, you find the nations of that, of, of that time dominated by Rome. But the Bible says that the Rome would not last forever. Rome ruled from about 168 BC to 351 AD, ruled for 500 years. But it says 
verse 41, where you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they'll mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron is not mixed with clay. So when you look at this image, you see descending value. Gold is more precious than silver. Then you see silver, more precious than bronze, more precious than iron. Then you see the toes of the image, iron and clay. So you see descending moral values. You see a society on the verge of collapse. And then when you think of the toes, they're not very stable. Iron and clay, clay is so brittle. So you see an image, you see a society about ready to fall apart. And it says that this iron and clay does not mix, but they'd mingle themselves with the seed of men. The European nations that comprise the Roman Empire, Rome would fall apart. You'd have the Anglo-Saxons come down from the north. You'd have the Alamenni, the Huns, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and all of the Lombards, all of these pagan tribes these barbarian tribes would come down. Rome would be weakened. How was Ro the Roman Empire weakened? They overextended their military too far. They lost their work ethic. The Roman Empire was filled with the desire for pleasure. They became a pleasure-mad, sports-crazy society. Immorality, sexual immorality filled Rome. Rome was known for its extensive feasts and parties. In fact, there they had vomit rooms. They had feasts that lasted for months. And they'd have a little feather and a little what they called emesis basin to throw up in. And, the, and you could take that feather after you'd gorge yourself and gorge yourself and gorge yourself, stick it on your throat and go to another room and, and vomit. You see, Rome was falling apart. It lost its moral ethic, if it ever had it. It was an immoral society filled with violence. It was, you take the Colosseums and the gladiator fights and you put your thumbs up if you want the gladiator to slit the throat of his enemy. I mean, it was a brutal, violent society. I wonder, when I look at America today, sports crazy, pleasure mad, governments at times corrupt, a society filled with sexual immorality, a society filled with violence. It's hard to turn anything on television today without seeing violence and immorality. I wonder if in the United States of America we are teetering like that great image on the toes of clay and iron. But as these barbarian tribes are coming down, the Roman rulers want to unite. So what do they do? How, how do they try to unite? they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. How are they, how are they gonna do that? Intermarriage, intermarriage. Uh, Napoleon, for example, divorces Josephine, marries Louise of Austria, so the Napoleonic line and the Habsburg line can be united. You go to, up in Denmark, and Friedsburg Castle, 
and you'll see the family tree of Europe showing the union of all those uh, well-to-do aristocrats, the royalty who are intermarrying to try to unite. They'll mingle themselves with the sediment, but they shall not cleave. So through intermarriage, also through conflict, strife, and war. You take, for example, Charlemagne wants to unite the Holy Roman Empire, bring it together. You think of Charles V wants to unite the Holy Roman Empire, bring it together. Or you think of some of the more modern, recent leaders who tried to unite all of Europe, and not only Europe, but down through the Middle East. Because remember, and this can become significant in a few moments, remember the Roman Empire was not only Europe, but it goes through the Middle East. It goes down to Northern Africa. They shall not cleave, the Bible says. They shall not cleave. But look, uh, you think of uh, Napoleon. He's defeated in 1815 at the Battle of Waterloo. He says, God Almighty is too much for me. Or you think of Hitler trying to unite all of Europe, gives that famous speech, we don't need God, we'll conquer with our own guns and so forth. I'm paraphrasing his speech, but that's the essence of it. But yet Hitler goes down. So you, you look at Mussolini, goes down. Uh, so when you look at the history of Europe and the Middle East, it's a history of conflict. It's a history of strife. I want you to think for a moment of the Roman Empire. It goes over into Jordan. You have that beautifully preserved uh, Roman uh, Colosseum at Jerash. I've been there on a number of times. Wonderful guests, treated so beautifully, warmly by the Jordanian government. I so appreciated that. We went over with our It Is Written television cameras a number many years ago and filmed in Jerash. But a Roman, beautiful Roman fortress there. You go down through Israel and you, you see the remains of the Roman society, see the aqueducts that the Romans built. And uh, you read political and religious history and you see that Rome dominated in the Middle East. It came down through Israel. You look, of course, in Egypt, you had Roman, Roman uh, soldiers as well. And then, of course, down through Northern Africa. When I read this Bible passage, it says, whereas you saw feet and toes, part of potter's clay, verse 41, and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. The kingdom shall be divided. You get down to verse 43. They'll mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they won't cling to one another or adhere to one another. The conflicts that we are seeing today in Europe, in the Middle East, will not bring permanent peace there. We pray for peace. We long for peace. But these conflicts have been going on for centuries. And until Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes, Europe and the Middle East will be divided. What then is on the horizon? What can bring peace? I love the prophecy in Isaiah Chapter 9, verse 6. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We long for peace. We are people of peace. The Bible says, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. But look, we recognize that men's hearts are defiled. Men's hearts are wicked. Men's hearts are fallen. As Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. But look at Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Who's that? Jesus. 
Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder until Christ returns in glory, until Christ returns in power with the government upon his shoulder. There will be conflict, war, and strife. Look, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David over his kingdom to order it, to establish it with justice, judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. So the forever kingdom of Christ is going to come. This is exactly what Daniel predicts in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel predicts it. Look, verse 44, for in the days of these kings, the days of what kings? Not Babylon, not Medo-Persia, not Greece, not Rome, not... Uh, not the initial phases of the divided empire when they're mingling it together in war. No, in the days of these kings, right down at end time, when you have conflict in the Middle East, when you have uncertainty in Europe, when you have instability in Africa, in the days of these kings, he says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other peoples. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The rock cut out without hands is the kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom will come. Peace will come to earth, Jesus says in John 14, verse 1 to 3, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, Jesus said, I will come again. The solution to world peace is not more human beings writing peace treaties. The Bible says when they say peace and safety, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 and onward, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. So we are not looking for world peace. Certainly as believers, certainly as Christians, we pray for our leaders as the Bible tells us to. Certainly, we long for peace. We are not people of conflict or war. But we recognize deep within our souls, we recognize in the fabric of our beings that the only ultimate solution to the world's problems is the coming of Jesus Christ. A new kingdom where the government is upon his shoulder, where peace reigns. Do you long for peace? Peace in your own heart where you can be free from worry and anxiety and stress and tension, where you can long to be free from fear of the future, where you can long once again to walk in a land where there is no sorrow, there are no tears, there is no heartache. Tears will never stain the streets of that city, as one song puts, writer puts it. We look for the day when all things will be made new. That's worth living for. That's worth committing your life to. Because the things of this earth will slip through our fingers like grains of sand. But the things of eternity will last forever and ever and ever. Would you like to make a commitment right now? Maybe you've made it before but you want to open your heart once again and say, Jesus, 
take out of my life anything that's not in harmony with your will. Maybe you've never made a full commitment to Jesus. Maybe you've had questions about the word of God. And you've seen tonight from Bible prophecy that God's word is true. Would you like to say, Jesus, I want to commit my life to you. I don't want to live for things that will pass away, things that are transitory. But I want to give my life to you now forever in Jesus' name. That's what I want to do. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your wonderful love. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the word of God and the prophecies in Scripture. We thank you that fulfilled prophecy indicates over these last 2,500 years that the answer to the world's problems is the coming of Christ to set up the new kingdom with stones cut out without hands. Bring to us, Lord, your peace. May the government soon be upon your shoulder. Come, Lord, create that new heavens and a new earth and reign in righteousness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, before you go today, a couple things, uh, a couple practical things for you. If you would like our study guides, we have some lessons actually in the book of Daniel. You can go to hopelives365.com forward slash weekly Bible study. You got it? Hopelives365.com forward slash weekly Bible study. And you will be able to get a lesson that you can do. You can download it. Secondly, if you have questions or prayer requests, our team would be more than happy to pray for you or answer any questions. That's info at hopelives365.com. Let me tell you a little bit about next week. Next week, we're going to see the fury of Nebuchadnezzar. Next week, Nebuchadnezzar builds an image, all of gold, a universal world leader, defying the commandments of God, commands and compels worship. We're going to compare Daniel 3, Revelation 13, Daniel's prophecies with Revelation's prophecies, the two great prophetic books of the Bible next week. You don't want to miss it. I look forward to seeing you next week. And this week, may our wonderful Lord bless you abundantly. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.